No, no, I, I like it. It's, it's I'm, trying to. I'm, I'm trying to. I'm trying to. Put me in a room with New Yorkers. Hey, welcome everybody. We're in the green room for Disrupt TV. More importantly, we're still trying to figure out massive snowstorms or massive snow. Actually, I'm gonna do that. Anyways, welcome, and we're in the back room, bad room, and um, let's do some reverse introductions. And real quickly, we're gonna talk from our guests. Uh, Aaron, tell us where we're coming in from and what we're talking about today. Coming in from Montclair, New Jersey, from my home, and uh, I'm going to be talking about uh, a new book and, more importantly, the ideas in the book called Deliberate Calm. Deliberate Calm. I could use that now. All right, Mark, what are you calling in from? What are you talking about? Uh, in Los Angeles, uh, we have storms outside and uh, rain and sleet, and uh, the Hollywood sign might get snow tonight. Uh, you never know. And talking about... Uh, the elephant in the room of B2B, B2C, and B2I. B2I is business to investors that nobody talks about. And if you talk about them, you're going to be more successful. All right. Very, very cool. Gar, where are you coming in from? What are we talking about? Coming in from Chicago, we get to talk about circular economy, uh, the disruptive way to think about reducing waste, really eliminating waste from our, uh, from our economic cycle. All right, three amazing folks. I'm here with two more amazing folks. My co-host, co-founder, Bala Afshar, and our amazing producer, Elle. And I will hand it back to you, Elle. All right, three, two, one. Thank you for joining us on Disrupt TV. My name is Vala Afshar. I'm the Chief Digital Evangelist at Salesforce and your co-host for the next hour. We welcome you to follow us on Twitter at Disrupt TV Show. Send Ray, myself, our distinguished guests, your questions live using hashtag Disrupt TV. It's my pleasure to introduce my co-host, Ray Wong. He's the CEO and founder of Constellation Research. He's the best-selling author of Everybody Wants to Rule the World. I don't leave anywhere without this book in my bag. <laughs> He's a regular television business and tech news contributor on Fox Business, Yahoo Finance, Bloomberg, and CNBC. In my opinion, he's one of the top futurists to follow on Twitter at RWAG0. Welcome, Ray Wong, to Disrupt TV. Hey, I'm here with my awesome co-host, Bala Afshar, the Chief Digital Evangelist for Salesforce, but he's also the author of The Pursuit of Social Business Excellence, which I normally have on me. Executives around the world pay attention to every one of his inspirational, insightful tweets, and when he's not hosting, keynoting, or leading events at Salesforce, you can find him speaking on business TV outlets such as Bloomberg, and of course, posting insightful analyses on ZDNet. But as we say often, it's not about us. It's always about our guests, and who do we have to kick off it today? Today, we have Gar Punet, Chief Impact Officer at Ripley, as our first guest. He's the Chief Impact Officer. 
where he leverages his unique experience in production, sales, climate tech to assist large academic, government, and Fortune 100 enterprise partners in building technology and empower zero waste and circular solutions. Ripley is a privately held B2B software company as a service that specializes in enterprise asset management technology for the circular economy. Gar began his career producing inspirational programming, such as Super Soul Sunday, which I follow, and special interviews with Oprah Winfrey Network. Wow, wow. That, that's oh. pretty cool. Yeah. <laughs> you can follow Gar on Twitter at G-A-R-R-P-U-N-N-E-T-T. -T. Welcome, Gar, to the Shrub TV. Uh, I, I disrupted my life. I went from, uh, yes, being in, in television production and then basically got obsessed with circular economy and sustainability when I was living in LA. So that was a little bit of a career switch. That's wow. awesome. That's yes. awesome. Yes. From yes. Oprah Winfrey to Ray and me. That's pretty, that's pretty I know. Wait, wait. You're going to have to give us some advice on better production at some point. <laughs> yeah, we'll yeah, we'll yeah, definitely yeah. have to talk afterwards. Paul and I were was, just discussing this earlier. But, yeah, it was a great experience. It really was. But really showed me again where how to really follow what you're passionate about. And that's what took me here. So, yes. Awesome. You know, passion is important. And we've been talking about the circular economy for quite some time time. And a lot of the conversations are about what we could do theoretically. A lot of things have changed. We've seen policies that have come about, right? There are a lot of initiatives, um, but people actually in, in, in this economy, people are actually looking at these as opportunities to not only save money, uh, but also do some good. Where are we on the state of the circular economy? Have, have we changed? Have things gotten better? Um, and of course, what are the real things that are occurring? Uh, so let's start there. Let's Great place to start. So really, when we think about circular economy, um, it's a, a, a buzzword, but it, it really means a, a grouping of a lot of different uh, economies that have already started. We've got the reuse economy, sharing economy, um, the recycling economy. All of those can get bundled into a circular economy, which is really um, the, the principle is simple. How do we actually design out waste from our production and manufacturing and even purchasing and and um, unfortunately, terrible habit of then using and then disposing of items. Um, so ultimately, all of this really started to get traction, um, you know, kind of in the 70s. This isn't all that new. It kind of, mm -hmm. it actually started with a different phrase, which was industrial symbiosis, which industrial was- Industrial symbiosis. Yes. That one did really well. Okay. Yes. An idea that you could connect the manufacturing outputs from one manufacturer and connect them to the inputs of another manufacturer and therefore reduced, frankly, the cost not only to maybe land. Wait, your, your waste is my gain. Exactly. Exactly. Your waste can be my input and therefore we all save money and we all actually extract less from our natural environment. So that's actually not unto familiar from what we're really seeing in today's economy, which is increasing prices maybe on finite resources. Um, I'm not going to say the the inflation word here is anything related to that, but ultimately, yes, who am I? But when it comes down to it, this is a way for companies to start rethinking uh, both their outputs and their inputs and really start designing into um, and out of these wasteful scenarios that we put our consumers in, our clients in, and really uh, rethink our supply chains in, in totality. What pulled you from the media industry to, to, to this space? Was there a particular part of the uh, technologies? I mean, I, in, in, in speaking to you as a guest, I simply wrote, 
circular economy factors, activities that preserve value in the form of energy, labor, and materials. This means designing durability, reuse, remanufacturing, and recycling to keep products, components, materials circulating in the economy. Was it the manufacturing piece? Was it the design piece? Was it a particular vendor or company that you know, uh, expanded your yes. and inspired you to, to, to be a part of it? Yes. Uh, it, the, the story for me is actually very simple of I was living in Los Angeles again, working and being and wanting to be that producer and playing that part. What that ended up actually meaning for me is I was paying a subscription fee for clothing. Um, and ultimately, uh, I got a piece of clothing. So it was fashion that really was my foray into this, which was the piece of clothing actually just disintegrated. It was a part of a fast fashion type of um, purchasing. And I, I called up the brand and I was essentially said, hey, what, what can you help me with here? This is I wore this for a week. Why is it falling apart? And their answer was, well, kind of you get what you pay for. Um, and that was the <laughs> light bulb moment. Where then, Yeah, it was the light bulb moment of wow. saying, oh, there's there's more here that can be done for me as a consumer. But then also, this is a business problem. Um, and ultimately, that's where I got sucked into this, which is saying, oh, this is actually a business model shift for how not only are you thinking of your supply chain, what you're thinking of in terms of your employees that are making clothing, the pride that many people take in, in creating a garment, and then also the pride that someone like myself has for wearing a particular piece of clothing. And so when I started to tap into that business model shift, it became like a, a real snowball effect into other business models. And so from clothing, we actually have seen in the last really 10 years, an explosion of a reuse economy focused on resale for used clothing. It's really just ultimately, you know, someone experienced what it was like to wear a particular piece of clothing and they want to share that and sell that to someone else. And we've seen a real growth in that in that business model, especially in the last five years where you can actually now resell and there's no longer as much of a stigma on used clothing. Gar, you got me thinking, right? Like we, we, we're selling products today. In the future, we might resell services to people. You might get my experience from whatever I did on Twitch or some other like metaverse world, right? This is actually very interesting. We got, we got these new markets that are popping up. What Absolutely. other use cases are you thinking of for uh, the circular economy that people have not, like we might not know, like you probably are in it, you're immersed in it. Yes. And people can say, here's something that I can do or be part of a network or be part of something there. Um, we have, I mean, this is a, a you every segment, and I'm, I, I will make this blanket statement because it's true. Every segment of our economy will have a reusable aspect to the goods that are produced for the clients and, and, and consumers of that economy. So if we're thinking about what does grocery mean? Um, well, that's going to look like uh, not only delivery models that then take um, your groceries to you, place them in your refrigerator, but ultimately place them in your refrigerator with reusable packaging, something that wow. can then, when they're placing those items, you can actually take those items back. Um, so you're not deadhead sort of going back to your, your distribution. You're actually then taking containers back, filling those containers, well, washing them first, really, that's the concern, washing them oh, That'll be good. We'll start there. Exactly. <laughs> washing them first, really processing them, making sure that consumers are comfortable with that experience. Yep. Then ultimately delivering to your consumer a zero waste product, something that delivers not the packaging, but the good inside a reusable packaging. And so it can really then be built into many other aspects of our economy than also our household experience. Makes so tie this to company ESG initiatives, Companies trying to achieve net zero, uh, you know, on your company website, you know, you reference some very large clients. Give us some use cases where people are making progress 
towards net zero initiatives, towards uh, ESG initiatives using this concept of circular economy, and then talk to about your company, how you helped them achieve some of these results. Absolutely. It may be surprising to some or unsurprising to most that uh, our, our companies that define our economy operate much like a normal household, just at such a massive scale. So when you actually start to get to those scales, we're not talking about, hey, honey, did you buy milk or I already bought milks? So now we have two milks. When we're actually getting to the scale of a company, you're talking about multiple procurement officials talking in multiple locations that may not actually know that they have much uh, of the same surplus on hand. So what we're doing at Reapley is we're really actually uh, disrupting um, what might be investment recovery, what might be thought of as surplus, but ultimately what is seen as an industry in which many of our larger clients have surplus that are sitting around in their warehouses, sitting around in their laboratories, in their closets, where uh, these, these assets, as we call them, can be really actually further utilized without being sent downstream to surplus. That if we actually at Reapley can help connect individuals to items that they may never have thought to actually share with their colleagues. So that can be anything from a high-end, uh, very expensive piece of research equipment. It could be anything from, believe it or not, building materials like ceiling tiles, other types of construction surplus that is sitting at a location. Or what we also see is a lot of what we call FF&E, which is furniture, fixtures, and other pieces of manufacturing equipment. Um, so all of these actually um, get fairly, uh, they get used in their day-to-day -day operational purpose. But then ultimately, when was the last time you talked to your colleague about the chair that they actually didn't want anymore? That chair ends up going having another life. Maybe it gets liquidated and sent to uh, some other location. But ultimately, what we see at Reapley is it actually spends about probably two to three years sitting around in a warehouse not being used. And so ultimately, how do we connect those resources back to the operations. And that could not be any more clear these days, especially in the workplace changes that we're seeing of like, how are we rethinking our office environment? How are we actually connecting our office environments to be more resource efficient? Um, because there's lots of changes coming when we're talking about the hybrid work environment and lots of changes coming when we're talking about what does the new design mean um, for our workplaces? I can tell you as someone who in my prior life stood up buildings being part of a core team of executives deciding location and then, you know, occupying the building and getting it ready for our workforce. We had no clue where the chairs were. We had no clue. Uh, we had fun visiting our warehouses because we're talking football field size, uh, storage buildings, and we would find from, from amazing, you know, big screen monitors, uh, to, to, to fancy chairs that sometimes exactly. I would take to my own office. Exactly. <laughs> Recognizing, wow, I, there's better furniture in the warehouse that I'm sitting on. And so imagine uh, an opportunity where you essentially do that virtually and you're shopping through that surplus mm -hmm. inventory that is in the warehouse that you didn't realize was there, but you're like, oh my gosh, this is available for my office. I'd love to take this. And you can actually then engage with your teams and actually decrease sort of that departmental silos that often happen when we get oh, when we talk about these large organizations. That would have been that would have been huge. Huge yeah. important. Hey, one of the interesting things is I, I noticed in your title, you're a chief impact officer. I know about chief sustainability officers. I know about folks that are focused on compliance. Uh, I haven't seen a lot of chief impact officers. It sounds like we've got a movement here. Uh, what, what are what are chief impact officers? You guys have one too, Vala. So I think. yeah, we do. We do. Uh, it's 
I've loved it. I've loved what this means for our organization as we grow. Um, from my angle, impact means how can I creatively think about what uh, what can I do to impact the business? So really thinking about not just, uh, you know, really growth strategies, frankly, of, of really thinking through like, what can we do that's going to exponentially increase the impact of not only growing our business, but also the very real impact that we can have on communities. And so a lot of what I get to focus my time on is thinking, what does reuse mean for the local communities that are actually around our clients? So mm -hmm. many of our clients actually have, you know, when they really are done using their items, when they're really thinking, okay, we're, we've streamlined this, we've said, hey, we really don't need this anymore. Well, it's gotta go somewhere. And ultimately part of our technology is actually creating that digital channel where they can actually be really tracking and selling or donating where those items go. Um, so that could be the local school system, that could be the local nonprofits, that could be the, even the local small businesses, and ultimately creating um, that, that flywheel motion where we've got more and more demand cycles of saying, hey, this is great stuff coming out of our clients. We would love more of this. Ultimately, that benefits our clients and that benefits the communities that our clients are in. When you're positioning Ripley, do, are you speaking to chief sustainability officers, chief operations? Uh, who who is the persona? Yeah. Uh, in in uh, and it may vary based on the size of the company that you're engaged with. But let's take enterprise. Absolutely. So employees of a thousand or more. Who's the line of business leader that you're partnering with to get a greater sense of appreciation and understanding of the impact of circular economy and your company? You named the first two. Um, typically, what we're finding with chief sustainability officers is they're okay. our champions. They're okay. the ones that actually step up first, give that stamp of approval and say, hey, this is actually something that can decrease our emissions as an organization. Correct. Typically, they're trying to rethink mm -hmm. their scope ones, twos and three emissions. Yeah. I can get yes. into that. Maybe we don't have time. But ultimately, scope yeah. three emissions are all about what are the what are the complete sort of a package of things that an organization has um, that are increasing their emission structure. How are they actually efficiently using everything that they have and decreasing those emissions? So a chief sustainability officer is really yeah. looking at that. Um, they give the stamp of approval and then that takes us away off to operations and then also facilities. Those are two big components that can, that can essentially say, hey, how do we actually integrate this offering into our procurement, into our um, other facilities types of processes where we can actually start uh, looping these resources back into our organization? Yeah. yeah, my company, I believe, is a scope three. So it requires the visibility of the entire ecosystem. Exactly. Because you have to apply the same rigor on your, on your products and services, but also the community of partners that help you bring yep. a product yep. service market. So it's it's a sophisticated uh, level of orchestration that's required to reach scope three. So I can imagine using software like yours to have visibility of the entire ecosystem. It's, without it, I don't know how you can how you could ever reach scope three. So so go ahead, Ray. No, no, that's I think that's, that was that was the right point. I mean, we're we're seeing that shift happen, and and I think that you know circular economy piece is one of it. The appliances piece is there. Um, but there's also an interesting thing. I'm here at the venturecapital.org event today. And what we I bumped into a guy that's actually um, creating a model to do manufacturing and take the mm. CNC machines that are used to do it to do it locally, because he believes yeah. that 40% of the cost and the carbon footprint is in the supply chain, right? Transport costs. So if you can get those machines that are idle all over the country in these centers to actually build on demand, uh, there's another way to actually create this circular economy effect and also drive down stuff because you bring the scraps back to the material center, you bring the stuff and you actually build the stuff there. You can do it with additive manufacturing as well. Um, how does that fit within your marketplace wow. idea that you guys are talking about? 
So well, this this frankly, I mean, additive manufacturing is something that we're very excited about. Um, it 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 will it will also disrupt how we build. Um, how we design, how do we think about the things that occupy the space around us? It's going to change ultimately um, the way that we view anything around us. That's going to actually take uh, our solution to a whole nother degree of, uh, frankly, maturity. You're going to start to get into really understanding the material science of a lot of these yep. items that uh, exist around us um, to the point where really the trouble that we have from circular economy is we have, frankly, just too many different types of things. So when we talk about a recycling economy, it's actually very complicated because there's so many types of things to recycle. Um, if we all actually had a more probably ubiquitous types of plastic supply chain where we legitimately only had five types of plastics, we'd have a much more um, uh, easier opportunity ahead of us to actually recycle through that volume of material. And so what we're going to find is additive manufacturing, if we could really hone in on some great materials and really figure out how to process those materials in both mechanical, but then also maybe even some other advanced uh, recycling types of capacities, that's material that can feed right back into any additive manufacturing. And we can just produce not endlessly. There's there's some degradation to this material over time, but ultimately it's going to be a lot more efficient than our current processes. Makes a ton of sense. This is really cool. So, well, hey, we're here talking about circular economy with Garb yes, and more importantly, the chief impact officer at Reapley and the host of a multi-userverse podcast. We need to talk about that some other time. So, <laughs> well, this is hopefully this just opens people's eyes to what's possible in the multi-useiverse. I'll put it that way. I love All right. that. I love that. Well done. Thank you, Garb. Multiple yes, party Mars, circular me. economy. Here we go. All right. Thanks a lot for being on the show. Thank you. That, I gotta, you know, I need to spend more time. It's, it seems like I don't know how you can be a company in any sector and not view this as, as the future. Speaking of future, uh, we have one of our favorite guests coming back, uh, Dr. Mark Goldston's uh, Marshall Goldsmith 100 Coaches Member and Coaches Entrepreneurs, CEOs, Chairs, and Managing Directors to become the best versions of themselves. He's an international keynote speaker helping audiences do the same. Originally a UCLA professor of psychiatry for over 25 years, and Ray, you know this, former FBI and police hostage negotiation trainer, Dr. Wilson's expertise has been forged and proven in real life high stake situations, you know, life and death situations. Dr. Wilson's author or co-author of nine books. I'm working on my second i got so much to catch up. With his, with his Is that book, breaking news? With his, with, no, I'm not. With, I, I'm sorry I said that. With, 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 his, with his books, Just, Just Listen, yeah. being translated into 28 languages and becoming the top book on listening in the world. Dr. Wilson is a host of a highly rated podcast, My Wake Up Call, and the co-host of Out of Our Minds and In Your Spaces on Twitter Spaces, which is a mashup for creatives and thinkers. He's a great follow on Twitter at M-A-R-K-G-O-U-L-S-T-O-N. Welcome back, Mark, after a year and a half on Disrupt TV. We're, we're back in the show. <laughs> Welcome back. That's a lot to live up to. <laughs> I, had, I had to cut your bio in a third because we only have 20 minutes. Sorry. 
Many good thing it's not our bios. <laughs> many of the awards and accolades were, you know, on the cutting room floor. So yeah, we, we have to live up to our bios. It's, it's your bio, thank God. Um, so, hey, Mark, welcome back. Happy to have you. And uh, I think we should give our listeners and viewers a little bit of background so that people understand uh, why you're relevant to the business community, why that background uh, creates that level of impact, and then, of course, how that gets us to that conversation around B to I. So, so share with us, what, how, how did you get started and like, why is this so relevant to businesses today? Well, what I found is that you want to be as compelling as you are convincing. One of the problems for a lot of businesses and founders is they're convincing out of the gate. And what does that mean is you want to toggle between talking to and with people as opposed to over and at them. Mm. So we feel find a lot of energy when people see when you talk over and at people, that's okay if you're all, you know, speeding around like that. But when you talk over at people, you cause people to have to listen to you and you take away their choosing to listen to you. Mm. And when you talk to and with them, they they can pause and say, Oh, I think I want to hear more. Whereas if you're talking over at people, they they often smile politely and what they're thinking is I've heard enough already. Or I could use that snack outside, but keep going. <laughs> oh, there you go. And so, and one of the things that I discovered, I spoke in Moscow along with Daniel Kahneman. He wrote Thinking Fast and Slow. And something that I've been trying to teach the world is that underneath people listening to you, they're always listening for something. And what they're and, and if you can focus on what they're listening for underneath what they're listening to, and if you can get what they're listening for without their telling you and you deliver on it. They'll give you everything. Vala? Oh, you, Mark, Vala, did you just see that? He did. It got us to listen. It was awesome. <laughs> I was like, yes. Well, here's what, here's what people are listening for. Uh, three things. So if you're doing a presentation, uh, whether it's a pitch to investors or whoever, it's what grabs people's attention is right out of the gate, if they think to themselves, I never would have thought of that ever. And that's relevant to me. Wow that could solve our problems. And then you want to give them a taste of something they can do immediately. So first, I never would have thought of that. I think that would work. I think that can solve our problems. I'm going to do something. And so that's what draws people in to hear more from you. I think uh, Val and both of you were fans of my first show because I, I delivered all these things and you're thinking, I never would have thought of that. I never would have thought of that. That is relevant. And people lean into that and they, choose to want to have more for you. So one of the things that I told you I wanted to speak to about is B2C and B2B and B2I conversations. And when you're having, for instance, a B2B conversation, which people at Salesforce have a lot of, is when you're doing your sales talk, uh, it's you want to break the transactional frame. Because a transactional frame is very hyper, but people are, have their guards up because they think, how's this going to be a zero-sum game? And so when you finish that, you say to the other person, uh, can I bring up the elephant in the room? And they're going to say, what? Uh, you're going to get their immediate attention. And you say, yeah, if this is a B2B call, yeah, can I bring up something that we haven't talked about that's the elephant in the room? And they're going to say, what? When's your next performance review? And they'll tell you when. And then you say, what's your confidence level from zero to 100% that you will get the biggest raise and biggest promotion possible? They're going to pause 
And a lot of times they're going to look up. And when they look up, that breaks the transactional frame. And when they come down, they're not going to be 100% uh, confident of it. And then what you say is, um, what is it that you need to deliver between now and then so that you get that big raise and big promotion? And then they'll share that with you. And then hopefully, if you have uh, identified them as a, 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 a proper customer, you may have something that will help them get that raise or promotion. But if you don't, you can shift the conversation and say, you know, what I have might help you, but I'm networked. I can introduce you to five people that will get you all you need to get that big promotion uh, or raise. And then you're in a position where you've pivoted to being focused on their success which could be at your own expense, but they're going to be grateful to you. And you've closed them on a unicorn called trust. Plus you introduce them to other people and they're going to be happy with you. There's an anecdote I give about when I went to Russia, uh, before I went, they had a reporter from RBC, which is one of the big publications speak to me. His name was Ilya. And Ilya says, Dr. Goulston, I have to speak to you. And I said, Ilya, uh, the only thing I'm concerned about, is one thing. He says, what's that, Dr. Goldstone? I said, all I care about is that you get a raise or promotion from this article. That's the good news. The bad news is I speak, I'm, I'm tangential, I tell yeah. stories, I give things, and uh, can you pull it out of there? So I get to Moscow, and they say, you know the article that Elia wrote? I said, yes. It had 460,000 views, and it's in the top 10 most read articles in the history of the publication. Wow. That's amazing. That's amazing. Is it is it your experience as a successful hostage negotiator, uh, uh, working in intense, uh, time sensitive, outcome sensitive uh, environments, non deterministic environments, where you're able to develop your uh, I don't I don't know what to call it uh, anticipatory muscles where in that B2B meeting or B2C or B2I, by reading your book and your body of work, you learn to anticipate certain outcomes, certain questions, certain mannerisms, whether it's a CEO you're meeting or a board director or, or an entrepreneur or venture capitalist, whatever it may be. How do you, how do you practice the art of uh, demonstrating what you said, uh, generosity, again, you, you, the elephant in the room is how do I help you excel in your career? So you're generously offering your network, your knowledge, your products, your services, whatever it may be. And you also uh, are a catalyst for reflective thinking based on the type of question you're asking. When the person looks up, again, you've shifted away from transactional to uh, a discussion where you really have to think about your conversation, which means that you perhaps started on the path of earning trust because it doesn't feel transactional in nature. You, you've surprised them with a question where they have to think, and it's not the normal narrative of feeling like you're being sold to. How do you, how do you, how do you prepare for that? How do you, I'm a salesperson listening to this now. I have a big meeting coming up Monday. Dr. G, what do I need to do from now until Monday so that I could quickly get to that unicorn trust space? Well, I've, I've simplified it into this principle. If you write this down, if you can be, if you can know that 
people are always listening for something underneath they're listening to you. And if you can just be curious and drill down into that and let go of your agenda, they will lean towards you. So for instance, you're listening to me, both of you, you're checking boxes, you know, uh, you gave me a long leash and I took advantage of it and then value just jumped <laughs> in. But here's what you're listening for underneath you're listening to me and see if this is right. What you're both listening for is we hate to wait our, waste our listeners and viewers time. They give us the gift of their time, which is something they don't have. And we're always listening for guests who can provide them with immediate, doable, relevant value. Because if we can give that to them and our viewers and listeners can walk away saying, I can use that today to make myself more successful, then you're serving them. And you want to honor them be, be, by giving them the best use of their time. You're probably since this is also live, you're probably also listening for someone that after the show, the two of you look at each other and say, We can't have that person on ever again. <laughs> that would never they, happen. They, yeah, waste, we'll they wasted our time, they wasted our viewers' time, they talked over at and down to them. Never, never. Let's speak to L. Where'd you find this person? <laughs> doesn't that make sense? Isn't that what you're it's oh, wow. very rare, if ever, do we have those conversations. And, and clearly, you're a repeat guest, so you know we haven't had that conversation. We have the problem with you. <laughs> but but does it? But does that make sense to you? Totally. You're, totally, always, you're totally. listening for something that gives your your viewers and listeners immediate value. So if you're viewing this or listening, what you want to know is whoever you're with is always listening for something uh you can use this especially in your personal right. life so for instance if you're if you're married often what your spouse is listening for uh, is not a solution or advice which is what you're good at they're listening for you to hear them out so they can get something off their chest feel better and then they'll solve their problem without you jamming them with unsolicited advice or solutions that they don't want that is the, that is, uh, please, everyone watching, rewind the last 20 seconds because that is so true. <laughs> that is so, I, 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 I married up. So I, I work for a senior executive who's in HR, human resources at Harvard University. Uh, so her clientele are some of the best and brightest people on earth. And uh, my experience is that when she's sharing work-related discussions with me, She's seven or eight steps ahead of me. It's like playing against a chess grandmaster. I will offer up my point of view only to realize within the next five minutes that, yeah, she's, that was a week ago, she had thought about that. <laughs> and she's way past this at this point. So you're right. Just, just so when it, when it comes to investors, um, and certainly when you look at the, when you look at the, 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 the economy today for both macro and micro uh, reasons, investors uh, are an important stakeholder uh, and, and one that businesses are trying to sell to. What should, how, how, how do you advise sales professionals when they're engaged with investors that may be different than when it's a traditional B2B or B2C engagement? Well, you want to add, you, first of all, you want to put yourself in their shoes and ask yourself, what are they listening for and to be honest, you know, they may like your technology, they may like the solution you have to a problem, but what they're really listening for, is this going to be the unicorn that makes up for all the losers we invested in? <laughs> That's what they're listening for. Yeah. And 
And what would cause them to identify you as a unicorn? And what that means is, uh, and, and right out of the gate, something I've been advising invest, uh, 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 startups to do is uh, if you know what the return is that the investor wants, make that your second slide. So your first slide is such and such. And the second slide is 20 to one in five years, 10 to one in five years. And then you want to reverse engineer how you can make it so. You know, when I write books, I, I just got advice that I wish I got nine years, nine books ago. Someone said to me, and if you're thinking of writing a book, this is the best advice I've ever heard. Write the back cover first, because the back cover is the promise of the book, and then reverse engineer from that. Wow. Wow. I mean, it's, it's so true. I know someone's going to take that advice to heart right now. But keep right going. now. Right <laughs> now. <laughs> and what happens is because what I've done is I've written the books and then at the end they say, what do you want to put on the uh, back cover? And by then it's like this missed opportunity. But if you start with that as the promise and reverse engineer, and that's what the book is about. And so when you're meeting with investors, if in their mind what they're looking for is the kind of return that a unicorn would deliver – Make that close to the opening because they're going to give you their undivided attention. Like, well, that's that's a bold promise, but then reverse engineer it from their point of view. I love that. Doctor, will, will you promise that when you do come out with your tenth book, and I said when, not if, you it, you you'll come on our show and, and share with us what it's about? Absolutely. <laughs> Great. No, and, and this is great. I mean, Jim McLeod, a friend of the show, just put here, great advice. Start with the promise and reverse engineer from okay, there. Okay, proper intro. Jim Jim McLeod is one of the most creative people I've ever had the privilege of working with. A world-class designer and digital marketeer. World-class. Anyway, sorry, go ahead. Thank yeah, you. no, no. And, and related to that, right, That that's part of the design, right? You're, you're describing what the design should look like, um, Mark. And, and, and But how do you listen for that? Right. You're coming in with, you know, the conversations and the levels and the expertise that you have. It's coming through, you know, millions of hours of conversations with people. Um, but but how do I know that's what the investor is listening in for? And how do you listen for that? Because some people are just not getting that message or even in the right stream to even know what to know. Well, something we said on the last show, which I think won you both over, is I said, when investors smile in the first three minutes, it's a no. <laughs> they're smiling because they don't want you to catch them being rude and, and and the smile is i'm done and you have 50 more slides i want to be respectful but it's a no so when they're smiling they don't i'm at smile. an investment pitch conference right now here in salt lake city <laughs> I'm just so when they smile and your gut tells you i've been here before and it's not a yes immediately stop the presentation and say can we stop and they're going to go what what because you woke them up and you caught them not wanting to be rude and they're going to say what uh when i started the pitch or the such and such you were listening for something and you didn't hear it and the reason you're smiling is we're getting further away from what you were listening for. What were you listening for specifically? Because nice. we, we might actually have it. We just, we just couldn't read your mind. What were you listening for? What? And we might have it. And if we don't have it, I'll introduce you to other people that have it. Right. 
this is from your hostage training, right? It is. I mean, That's exactly what I was thinking. Right? <laughs> right? I mean, in that when you're negotiating in a hostage really situation, work? just you have to be radically transparent, cut the bullshit and get to the point so that you could figure out next steps. I mean, I, How do you I get people what they yeah, want. Yeah. yeah. I mean, wow. we're assuming that. Can you we're assuming that. We have no idea. We're just, we think we're smart, but we're not. We're like, like <laughs> is that where you're headed, Mark? I mean, is that the idea? Like that level of listening and intensity? So, yeah, yeah. But I still want to, you know, I keep repeating it. Uh, if there's one thing I want everybody to take away from this, including the two of you, especially in your marriages, is that uh, is, is always know that the other person's listening for something. And if it feels like your conversation is going sideways, they didn't hear it. So rather than trying to, pull them back and end up driving them away further, just pause and say, you were looking for, you were listening for something, you didn't hear it or you didn't hear it yet. And before I try your patience with me, what was it? Yeah. And they will, and they will tell you. Yeah. No, this is, this is, makes a lot of sense. I mean, the ability to focus in and listen to what someone else is saying, making sure they they feel important and actually felt is, is half the battle with communications. And, and we do spend so much time, as you talk about talking, not listening. So, yeah, you know, something I do tell a lot of uh, founders, and I'll tell the two of you, and this will hopefully take it to the next uh, step on this. Uh, there's a number of founders I meet and I say, you need to be more formidable and less forceful hmm. because when you're forceful, you're being pushy and the other people perceive you as being pushy and that's, they smile because they don't like being pushed. What you want to be is formidable. Uh, so for instance, when I do conflict resolution uh, between partners in a company, I will step in there and my way of being formidable is to say, uh, I'm not a surgeon, but I am a medical doctor. And as we proceed, uh, no one is going to crap on my surgical field. <laughs> and at the first sign that one of you is crapping on it, we're going to do a timeout. The other people are going to go for coffee and I'm going to take you aside. We're going to do a sidebar. I'm going to talk you down from DEFCON 1 to DEFCON 4 because you're blowing it. So does anybody have a problem with that? So do you follow me? It's creating a formidable space that you stand up for. And it can't be about ego. When I do that, it's not like I'm the big honcho. What I'm saying is yeah. if, if this deteriorates, each of you escalating and talking over and at each other, it's not going to go anywhere. So I'm going to protect this from the two of you. Let's stop wasting everyone's time and let's start making it productive. Wow. Amazing. All right, never works when I say I stayed at Holiday Inn Express last night, so I guess I'll try this one. <laughs> We're here with Dr. Mark Golston, M100 MG, ah, MG100 coach, more importantly, founding member of the Newsweek Expert Forum, and of course, just listen, and the author of nine books and soon 10. We're sure of that. So you follow him on Twitter at Mark Golston. Thank you so much for being on the show. Thank you for having me back. Thank you. You were brilliant. Thank you so much. Wow. Uh, I find myself forcing myself to be a good listener when Mark is on because I know he's an expert at judging good listening and I just don't want to get a poor grade. <laughs> anyway, anyway. Uh, now, 
now with our next guest, I am going to try to be deliberately calm. Aaron D. Smith is the author of Deliberate Calm. God, we need that. All of us need that. Aaron is a senior partner at McKenzie, specializing in transforming large institutions to improve organizational health and performance. In fact, he's led the firm's thinking on organizational health and leadership. Aaron's articles in McKinsey Corner are among the most read, and yeah. he's a member of the master faculty of the Change Leaders Forum and of the Organizational Agility Forum, which he helped establish. Aaron is the co-author of the book, Deliberate Calm, How to Learn and Lead in Volatile World. This book is a work of trio of McKinsey veterans drawn from a unique combination of psychology, neuroscience, consciousness practice, plus combined 50 plus years of international boardroom experience to offer a unique approach to learning and leading with awareness, intentional choice, even during the most turbulent times. Welcome, Aaron, to the Shrub TV. Thank you. Great to be here. Thank you, sir. You know what? I'm going to start by this. He doesn't have a Twitter handle, Vala. That's why he's calm. <laughs> exactly. That, that may be how you deliberately say You know, that was very... There. My, my, my older kids have been trying to get me on all this stuff, and I'm like, no, no, no TikTok, no Twitter. He's <laughs> off social media. Let's start with rule number one. No, just kidding. Okay, yes. so why, why did you want to write this book now? I mean, you know, I mean, what what, what inspired you? Um, well, I've been doing research in the area of uh, leadership effectiveness um, for 25 years. Uh, I started my graduate research in the mid-90s at Columbia University, where I got my PhD. Um, and I've kept doing that through the years and through my professional work as a consultant. And one of the things I noticed is that uh, the, the type of disruptive change that leaders face at all levels and organizations is just increasing. The magnitude of change, the frequency of change, the volatility, and it's changing how we think about approaching high stakes situations. Mm -hmm. um, performing in high stakes situations has always been hard, but some of the things we've done in the past to prepare for those actually don't serve us well in many situations. Ooh, give us an example. Um, I'll, I'll give you an example. Um, one of the books I, I read a lot. So one of the books I, I read years ago is a book about uh, sports. I read a lot of sports psychology. So my PhD is in social and organizational psychology. But for fun, I'll read I'll read sports psychology. And uh, sports psychology is interesting. It, it's very much about how to perform in high stakes situations. Um, so Timothy Galway wrote a book called The Inner Game of Tennis and then The Inner Game of Golf. And it, he went through various sports. But it was always the same. It's like we we get in the way with our own self-doubt our own getting in our own heads and he talked about how much you can overperform versus others if you can tune into knowing the things that you're doing going back to your training getting out of your own way getting rid of the interference that might block you from doing the thing and you'll see this sometimes if you've ever watched um uh, let's say football, American football, and the quarterback throws an interception and they say it's a great time to have amnesia, right? Um, and so, so some of these things are, are, are really like, hey, just go back to what you know. In a high-stakes situation, when you're playing a game where the rules haven't changed and you've prepared and you're really good at that thing, go back to what you know. And that's actually, um, it's a fairly... Um, hardwired thing for us in a high stakes situation we tend to yeah. go back to what we know 
And the real trick is not to freak out. Right? So you're That's saying that we, you might be saying we hijack our own instincts all the time? We, um, so in, in trying not to freak out and going back to what we know, that only works if we're playing a game that we know the rules of and we've prepared for. What happens when a new curveball comes at us and we're so focused on calming down and going back to what we know, we forgot to survey the situation and realize that we actually need to learn and do something different. And if you want to learn and do something different, you actually need to calm down even more. There's a certain level of getting hyped up and energized and adrenaline flowing that actually helps when you're doing what you know. Like if you're doing something you've really prepared for, if you're a firefighter and you're going into a fire, it's super high stakes. There are some risks, but, but basically you've trained for this. You know how to do this. The adrenaline helps that you rely, you fall back on your training and your knowledge. No, it makes sense. And the sports analogy is great. Um, you mentioned American football. I mean, if, if you watch the Super Bowl, the Philadelphia quarterback fumbled the ball and, you know, Kansas City scored seven. After that, he produced four or five touchdowns. Uh, exactly. So immediately, uh, if you watch, uh, you know, uh, uh, yeah, so, so having having the ability to bounce back. If I played basketball, so we used to say he's got ice in his veins or He's exactly. money. He's he's money when exactly. when 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 the game's on the line, uh, and Ted Lasso reminds his team that have a memory of a goldfish. Uh, so <laughs> don't 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 uh, don't don't go too high on praise. Don't go too low on on criticism. So, but as you said, it's the repetitive nature of athletes that gives them not only the confidence but the muscle memory to, in an intense situation after a misstep, produce good results. What are some of the core elements that good business leaders have demonstrated so, to you? So the thing that business leaders have to realize is, is this one of those situations that's high stakes, but actually going back to what I know will serve me? Or is this a situation where going back to what the rules of the game have changed and going back to what I know is going to keep producing poor results? And, and this is not an easy question to discern. You have to use really good judgment and situational awareness to say, oh, wait, I keep trying harder to do the same thing that's always worked for me. Okay. And it's not working anymore. And the reason it's not working anymore isn't because I have to get back on the horse and try harder. Yeah. It's actually because I got to fundamentally transform and do something different. So Aaron, I are you saying during volatile times, experience could actually be a liability? Yes. Wow. If, if, wow. if you don't realize that the experience you have doesn't apply. Yeah. One of, one of the stories we tell in the book is um, Sully, Captain Sully. And oh, wow. Yeah. We yeah. use that as one of those rare times when somebody did the, the thing that we talk about how, and how hard it is to do. So, so Sully takes off. Yep. There's a bird strike shortly yep. after takeoff an engine goes out and and this is a this is a rare event but not an unheard of event people have sure. trained for this sure and so he calls the control tower and he says there's been a bird strike and he explains and they say turn around and come back and this is where his deliberate calm kicked in and he said wait hold on the training says to go back the manual says to go back the control tower is telling me to go back but this doesn't feel right. I don't think all my training is correct here because two engines are out. All the training was when one engine went out. Now two yep. engines are out. Is yep. is all the things I've trained? Is 
is that knee-jerk reaction of what I've been taught to do and what they're telling me to do the right thing. Yep. And the answer is no, it wasn't the right thing. And we know that because he was told to turn around. He was told again and again to go land yeah. in an airport and he kept yeah. resisting appropriately. Yeah. And when they investigated, they were like, oh, actually he was right. He but he is rare. Buildings. Yeah. He is rare. Most of us are hardwired to go back and do what we've been trained to do, to do what we've been taught to do, to do what we've learned to do and not to do what he did. Most of us, but that's a muscle you can develop. So you don't have to be the rare person who was born a Sully. You can actually build that muscle. You can practice it. You can, so that when that moment comes, you're like, oh, I know how to, I know how to do this. I know That's how amazing. to pivot and learn and adapt. That's amazing. Well, this is the part you talk about where biology has to work for you instead of against you in these types of instincts. Exactly. And, and this whole example was great. Uh, and, you know, we can't have a conversation anyways without talking about AI. Can you imagine the AI in the future that says, sorry, you were wrong. We're going to do this because it's never been done before. Like you're completely off. Right. And you got to fight that instinct to say no. Right. Like everything tells me this is incorrect. You mean, what you're saying is the AI software in the plane overrides Sully's judgment. Yeah, because, because and, the training model never had water landing data. Yeah, it well, never the, had it before. The problem, the problem with AI, the pro, the thing I worry about with AI is AI exactly. is based on patterns of what have happened in the past, yeah. not what's about to happen in the future. Not what's and, about to happen in the future. And now what happens is there's a 0.007% chance you could do this over the water because there's this weirdo that did it like, you know, 500 years ago. Maybe right? Never it's going to be before. like that in AI. You right. know? I, I mean, I, I think... Um, I, I just take a lot of the AI with a grain of salt. It's pretty amazing what AI can do, sure, that, sure. like for sure. But sure. when there's a new situation where we don't have a lot of past pattern recognition that applies, I'm not, I, mm -hmm. I think we got to take all the training that we've had with a grain of salt and what any AI recommendation with an equally big grain of salt. Um, it's very interesting how this also shows up in some of the literature on personality research. Mm -hmm. So for many decades, people have asked, are certain personality types more successful at work and on the job and task performance? And, and they, they usually use what is called the big five model of personality. So the big five personality factors is something called the ocean model. This has been studied for decades. Ocean stands for openness to new experience. Mm -hmm. C is conscientiousness. E is extroversion. A is agreeableness. And N is neuroticism. Okay. And, and this is based on factor analysis of all kinds. It's like, these are the five personality traits that always show up. And for many years, you, I would read it and I'm like, oh, it's a correlation of personality factors and job performance. Same results. Two things matter. One, always a good thing. One, always a bad thing. The other three, a mixed bag. Here's another one. Here's another one. It's always, pretty soon I quit reading them because they were always the same answer. So, um, <laughs> Uh, you can guess which one is bad. So negative correlation with performance is neuroticism. The positive was always conscientiousness. Mm. Conscientiousness, yeah. reliability, grit, determination, yeah. uh, being conscientious about your work, caring about doing a good job, putting in the extra effort. That was always the pot. The others were always kind of a mixed bag. Agreeableness, eh, too much agreeableness and you're a pushover. Mm. Not... Too much agreeableness and maybe you're not formidable to go back to the last conversation um it turns out introverts are just as successful as extroverts there's no consistent correlation there. i'm happy to hear that <laughs> but one, i i saw about 10 years ago i saw a piece of research that suddenly said 
openness to new experience more successful? I was like, well, that's new. And then I saw it again and again. I was like, what is going on? And it turns out that conscientiousness is really good, really good when the job is well-defined and you know what you're supposed to do. <laughs> if you have a lot of grit and determination and just keep at it and keep at it and keep at it, and actually the rules of the game have changed and you got to go try something else, it turns out in that case, openness to new experience is better. It also turns out that these personality factors are just tendencies. You can build the muscle. These are, these are muscles you can build. You can build a, a more flexible mindset. You can build a learning mindset. And if you scan the situation, you might say, oh, the rules of the game haven't changed. I just had an unfortunate setback. This is a good time to rely on what I know and go back to grit and determination and try again, have some of that amnesia, don't get in my own head, ignore the nagging doubts, the, those questions about, am I good enough? Am I doing the right thing? And just go back at it. But if you're, if you're really discerning, you might also start to see, oh, wait a minute, this isn't that kind of situation. This is a situation where maybe it's different enough that I can't go back to what I know. I should listen to those nagging doubts. I should listen <laughs> to the questions about, is this gonna work? Maybe that's a really good question to ask myself. And maybe I should be figuring out, should I try something different? Should I not fly back over a crowded population to try to land on a runway and just put it down on the water? Cause that's the safest, best thing to do. What was, uh, can you think of examples of where you had to practice being deliberately calm, working with two colleagues, writing a book? Because <laughs> I can imagine, I can imagine, you know, three super successful PhD, you know, uh, with 50 plus years of experience. There had to be moments of disagreement. Uh, so, you know, how did you get through it and what advice do you have? for people that are working on projects, whether it's a book or transforming a business like you do in your consulting work, where it's, you know, it's, a, it's working in a team um, environment, not just, you know, as a, as a, as a solo contributor. Um, so my, uh, I, I didn't, I didn't get that emotionally triggered during writing the book where I needed to, to do that. Um, I, it happens in, it happens in surprising places. Sometimes, someone will ask me a question as if they think I don't know what I'm talking about. And I'll be like, who, what? <laughs> they don't realize how amazing I am and how smart I am and how I know what I'm doing. And, and if you're not careful, those things like are just like, all my focus is how irritable, like what a jerk they are. <laughs> and what you have to do sometimes is like, wait a minute, maybe this reaction says more about me than it does about them. It's very easy especially if they were impolite, especially if the way that somebody said something sure. was not appropriate. Yeah, words matter. Uh, yeah, but absolutely. my emotional reaction to it, I mean, I could be like, oh, that was kind of inappropriate and not have an emotional reaction. True. If I'm having that strong of an emotional reaction, maybe that says something about my identity and my ego. And I need you, to should, like, you should come to Twitter. Join Twitter. Don't worry. Twitter <laughs> will help you practice that muscle on a... On a Minute by minute basis, trust me. I have I have teenage children. Don't worry, I get to practice regularly. Um, so you know, someone, the, so someone who doesn't know twenty five years of practice, amazing book, most read research at McKinsey, just uh, 
can can tr trigger uh, an emotion where they, they they're challenging your your. I can I can see that. Oh, I mean that that time. to me. Like, that, oh, I, like I see I, that. I see one that. of the one of the biggest tricks of of doing this well is being able to scan the situation and look for the clues about is this a situation where I should do what I know or do I need to learn something different. Hmm. And then the other is the internal awareness. Am, am I starting to, because once you get emotionally triggered, the most likely thing that you do is you, you have a knee-jerk reaction. You have an emotional knee-jerk reaction. Mm. And it turns out that that is a very, that is not a good way to deal with high stakes on certain situations. That usually leads to disastrous results. It turns out the research on this is very interesting. It's also not helpful to simply suppress your emotions. If you feel a negative emotion like anger, fear, frustration, people who ignore that, if, well, let me go back to the, what I said before. If it's a known situation, actually ignoring it can work. It mm. turns out ignoring emotions is really harmful when you need to be creative, learn, innovate, and adapt. If I just need to go back to what I know, suppressing my emotions can be great. But mm -hmm. if I'm in that uncertain adaptive zone yeah. where it turns out that just having reacting through the flood of emotion is a terrible thing to do, but suppressing or ignoring the emotion is also a terrible thing to do. So what you have to learn to do is pivot the emotion. You have to channel it and redirect it. So one way I do that when I feel like, oh, I'm emotional rather than ignore it is I get curious about it and say, oh, I wonder what that's telling. Maybe that's a clue that something's important for me here. What's important for me here? And I start, I've learned to ask myself questions to try to take, take the negative emotion and make it more productive. It's a really good trait. Sorry, I'm oh, sorry, Vala. It's, it's a yeah. really good trait. Like we talk about this. There's a thing we talk about around dynamic leadership, right? And sometimes you're you're composed, right? You're like, okay, this is how we're gonna do it. And otherwise, like if you do that, you like like you're not, you don't care. You're not passionate enough, right? And there's that there's that lever that you got to switch between all these different areas between being responsible and responsive. And it, it's like, it's kind of an interesting play to be. So I, I love the, I love pivoting to reflective thinking versus reflexive. You know, Aaron is asking, is asking questions reflecting on maybe this is important. Maybe I should listen. He's not immediately trying to respond. Haven't you read my book? You know, you know, so, so, so <laughs> chapter that, seven. That's that's great <laughs> advice for those of you listening. And, and early in my career, oh my, you know, because I felt like I did the homework. I, I did the due diligence. Well, this is the thing. Know? I mean, I work with a lot of senior executives, most of whom are really good people. They're they're all they also really are performance driven, right? They care 100%. about their job. They care about the company. They're highly invested in doing a good job, not only for themselves, but for the people, the teams they lead, the organizations they lead. 100%. So their identity is very tied up into doing a good job. 100%. 100%. So when somebody comes and tells them bad news about this didn't work, this wasn't a good decision, this wasn't smart. Ah, it drives it, them nuts. It, it, it's, a, it's emotionally triggering. Totally. And, totally. You, and again, if you're, in a, if you're in a place where the thing you need to do is adapt and innovate and learn and change and transform, just suppressing that emotion is a terrible thing, but also just giving into the emotion and reacting out of the emotion also is really not good. So what do you do? You, you're like, well, I can't, I can't ignore it and suppress it and I can't just succumb to it. What do I do? 
you channel it. You say, okay, this is important. I'm passionate about this. Why am I passionate? How do I, how do I express my passion in a positive way? How do I look at this? It sounds really cheesy to say, look at every crisis as an opportunity, but you got to find a way to do that. Otherwise you will not be able to be creative and innovate and change when the world around you is demanding that if you want to thrive and survive going forward, you've got to change. Yeah. You mentioned sports. I think about UCLA famous coach John Wooden, who said, go fast, but don't hurry. Sometimes you have to slow down a bit and think about, you know, it may be going really fast in the wrong direction. Um, and for a lot of business leaders who've had success in the past, that experience leads them to think that, uh, you know, let's just do it the way we've done it. And, and it could be disastrous. So what's well, funny. It's, it's funny, the, um, it goes back to Danny Kahneman's thinking fast, thinking slow. Yeah, yeah, right, um, right. But, but you know, people ask, well, what are some good habits? And it turns out like if you're learning and innovating and really trying new things, we always say getting sleep yeah. matters. Getting sleep matters even more. Neuroplasticity doesn't work very well if we're constantly stressed and we, never, and we don't get enough sleep. A lot of the rewiring happens during rest and during yeah. sleep. Um, it also means, though, that we have to be very thoughtful about how the practice is. So people say, is, is mindfulness or meditation a good practice? And my answer is usually yes. <laughs> but some people have used meditation as an emotional bypass. They use it yeah. Oh, yeah. to ignore things yeah. in their oh, lives yes. that are... I, I, I felt I actually did this in my life. I had a really hard time in my personal life. Um, uh, about 10 years ago. And I was meditating. I was very much the meditative guru and I was dealing with it very effectively. And actually what I was really doing was I was ignoring a mounting set of problems in my personal life that came to a crisis point. Wow, and I wow. was not learning and changing and adapting. I was just ignoring it and being very Zen about it. Wow. And it didn't, didn't serve me. I, I, the biggest thing that taught me this lesson was actually my personal life. Amazing. Thank you for sharing. That's yeah. Thank you for sharing. And your book yeah. is, 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 is amazing. And, and uh, it's something that all of us can benefit from. So thank you. Every high performing leader, high performing individual should catch it. Uh, it's on Amazon. Aaron DeSmet, one of a trio of McKinsey and company veterans sharing their leadership experiences. And of course, more importantly, the author of Deliberate Calm. Thank you so much for being on the show. We've got so much to learn from you. Hope to catch up with you. Quick comment from Mark. Uh, he mentioned that uh, Tim Golly is a good friend of his. You two should connect. Check the awesome. private chat for details. <laughs> Anyways, thanks Thank for being you, on the chat. Thank so. you. Cheers. I have to Mind blown? You, Are you calmer? I feel calmer with Aaron. I feel like I still have many, many hours of work to improve my listening skills. And certainly, I recognize after talking with Gar that I need to beef up my research on circular economy. So yes, <laughs> yes. But uh, it's it's just extraordinary uh, to talk about, you know, economic technology, business trends that are inevitable uh, for all businesses, all sizes, all geographies and industries. And it's just the important uh, art, art and skill of listening and mental, uh, you know, uh, readiness. Uh, you know, um, and, and the sports analogies, I always gravitate towards 
those. Uh, I used to play sports. I don't anymore. <laughs> but if again, if you watch the Super Bowl and you saw a devastating mistake by the quarterback, and then he just came back and had the game of his life. Unfortunately, they lost, but he was immediately able to bounce back. And in business, I wonder how often leaders, after a devastating misstep, can successfully bounce back without practicing deliberate calmness. So, your thoughts, well, Ray? Well, we're short on time, but real quick, you know, amazing guests, uh, really good insights on in terms of how we can actually uh, build impact. Circular economy is coming. We're seeing the impact of what that means. More importantly, if we think about Mark Olston, we just got to listen more. The techniques coming from hostage, high stakes hostage negotiations have definitely helped him understand how to explain listening. And, and I think that's one of the most important things, like listening for what people are needing, understanding motivations, bringing those things together. Uh, I mean, that that's an art. I mean, I'm sure there's a lot more to it, but it's definitely an art uh, that he's made into a science, which is amazing. And then, of course, Aaron really sharing with us, you know, what are the things that we need to do? And, and one of the things I wish I would have asked him if I could is how do you recharge your batteries? Uh, because... Uh, you know, high performing folks. I mean, they all have their own thing that they go and, you know, I watch keynote speakers all the time. Like we had one guy at, our, at CCE, which is our flagship conference every year. Man, he was doing a whole routine. Like he was getting pumped for his like keynote. I'm like, oh man, I, I don't do that. I got maybe I miss an hour or something, you know, but it's pretty wild. Um, but I think if you're listening to Disrupt TV, this is the fastest hour and plus uh, <laughs> on business, technology, leadership, entrepreneurship, uh, what's happening in the world of uh, tech. And of course, we always have great thinkers, great minds, and an amazing alumni. And of course, uh, you can catch us every Friday at 11 a.m. Pacific, 2 p.m. Eastern. Who do we have next week, Vala? So Next week, uh, speaking of brilliant authors and technologists and business leaders, we have Jonathan Reichenthal, uh, author of Cryptocurrency Quick Start Guide. Uh, I definitely need to read that. Uh, <laughs> Lee Rainey, Director of Internet and Technology Research at Pew Research Center. And Gabriela Rosen Kellerman, Chief Product Officer at BetterUp and co-author of Tomorrow Mind. Again, the best and brightest authors come on Disrupt TV. If it's Friday, it's Disrupt. We'll see you next week. Thanks, everyone. All right, Sarah.